0: Hello, and welcome to the French History Podcast. My name is Gary Sherhaw. Episode 18. Pax Gallia. Rebuilding a Roman Gaul. Before we begin, I want to make one quick correction. Unfortunately, my American accent hasn't done justice to the word Gallic, and I have unfortunately been pronouncing it Gaelic. Gaelic, of course, refers to modern Celtic languages, such as Scots Gaelic, whereas Gallic would be a better pronunciation for those tribes that lived in France 2,000 years ago and before. I suppose I was so concerned about getting the complex names correct, like Convicto Litavus, Casselavanus, Vercingetorix, and others, that I didn't put enough effort into the little words, so my apologies. In our last episode, Gaul was in ruins after roughly a decade of brutal war. Gaul had suffered a massive Roman invasion, repeated German incursions and raids, and numerous intertribal civil wars. The result was that perhaps 20% of the population were killed or sold into slavery, with many others dying of hunger. But, in 50 BCE, the war ended, as the tribes of Gaul surrendered their independence to Rome and the last of the major uprisings were quelled. After ten years of utter devastation, Gaul was about to enter into a long period of peace and reconstruction. Though the Gaul that emerged after the Roman invasion was not the same as the one before, as evidenced by the fact that its very name was changed from Gaul to the Latin Gallia. Under Augustus, Gallia would be split up into different provinces, but when Caesar left it in late 50 BCE, Gallia was a largely unorganized territory, with a capital at Lugdunum, or modern-day Lyon. By the time Caesar left, most Roman forts and their soldiers were located in the east because they were more concerned about German invasion than another Gallic uprising. In 49 BCE, Julius Caesar famously crossed the Rubicon River in northern Italy and launched his civil war. The showdown with Pompey had finally come. But while Italy, Africa, Hispania, and the eastern provinces were caught up in a maelstrom of death, Gallia was spared. Gallia, after all, was firmly under Caesar's control, and Pompey never got the opportunity to contest power there, as his forces and Caesars battled it out in Africa and the Near East. Galia, after all, was firmly under Caesar's control, and Pompey never got the opportunity to contest power there. In fact, the only battle that took place in all of Galia largely didn't involve Gauls. This was the Siege of Massalia. As I mentioned in episode 8, A community of Anatolian Greeks settled in southern France and founded the city of Massalia at modern-day Marseille. From there, they built a small but important empire with colonies across southern Gaul. Many of these colonies were absorbed by Rome, as Massalia was a naval power, not a land power, and could not contest invasion by the Ligurian tribes or their Gallic cousins. But while the Massalian Empire fell apart, the city grew richer than ever under Rome's protection, so rich that it became highly conservative and its ruling oligarchy aligned itself with Pompey, the Senate, and the Optimates against Julius Caesar and the Populares. Furthermore, Pompey sent a small army to the city just to remind them where their loyalties lie. While Caesar marched west into Hispania, he left one of his generals with three legions to besiege the ancient city. The general blockaded the port, the Massalian navy was kept in the harbor, and attempts to break the blockade failed. Instead, a four-month-long siege took place, wherein Caesar's forces wore down the defenders until they eventually surrendered. In the ensuing treaty, Massalia lost all of its territories outside the city and was granted a degree of autonomy, although it was now firmly under Roman control and would eventually adopt the Latin name, Massalia. While the Siege of Massalia was the only major battle fought in Gallia during Caesar's civil war, many Gauls did engage in the war as auxiliaries or under the newly created Legio Quinta Alaudae, the lark-crested Fifth Legion, so named because the high crest on the soldiers' helmets made them look like larks. The 5th Legion drew from Gallia Narbonensis and was a melting pot of Gauls, Ligurians, and Roman subjects. The 5th Legion was the first Roman legion composed of provincial soldiers, as opposed to Roman citizens, and marked a major turning point in Roman military history. At this time, Caesar paid the soldiers with his own resources, but after his victory in the Civil War—oh, spoilers, Caesar wins— After his victory, the legion was recognized by the Roman Senate and incorporated into the army. The 5th legion was raised to fight Vercingetorix in the Gallic Wars and stayed in Gaul until 49 BCE when it was moved to Spain. This new legion got around quite a bit and fought in Greece at the Battle of Pharsalus in August 48 against Pompey's soldiers. It then fought in northern Africa at the Battle of Uzita in 47, and again in 46 at the Battle of Thapsus. It was at Thapsus that the Fifth Legion became famous when it withstood a charge of war elephants by Juba I, king of Numidia. Caesar rewarded them with an emblem of a war elephant, and it became their standard ever since. The 5th Legion then joined Caesar at the Battle of Munda in 45, the last major battle of the war, which saw Caesar triumph over his rivals, paving the way for his return to Rome. Upon his return, Caesar prepared to declare himself dictator for life. But that was not meant to be, as a conspiracy of senators assassinated Caesar, For a brief moment, it appeared as if the Senate would retake control of the Roman world, as Caesar's leading general, Mark Antony, and the pro-Caesar factions were scattered and in disarray. But then Caesar's funeral took place. While Caesar was hated by the Senate, he was beloved by the Roman people. Mark Antony seized the opportunity and delivered a eulogy for Caesar and condemned his assassins, turning popular support against the Senate. It is at this point that a new character enters our stage, one that will radically reshape world history, Gaius Octavius Thurinus, known as Octavian before his ascension to power and Augustus after he became the first Roman emperor. Octavian was Caesar's grandnephew and a personal favorite of the Roman general. Because Caesar had no living children, he declared Octavian his heir. When word of Caesar's assassination reached Octavian, his friends advised that he go into hiding. But Octavian was both daring and a political genius, perhaps one of the greatest political minds in all of human history. Rather than fleeing to Macedonia, Octavian sailed from Illyria to Rome. Upon arriving, Octavian learned that Caesar had made him his heir, meaning Octavian should have inherited the greatest fortune in all the Roman world. I say should have, because for a while, Mark Antony tied up the funds in order to hamstring the young man. But while Octavian struggled to acquire his fortune, he did claim something else. Godhood. Despite objections from Mark Antony, the people of Rome demanded that Caesar be declared a god, and afterward Octavian took full advantage of this, claiming that he was the descendant and heir of a god, and therefore divine himself. Octavian, like Caesar, was a brilliant propagandist, and what better way to get people on your side than to tell them you are literally a living god. Furthermore, Octavian was able to get the continued support of the Senate and the ruling elite on his side through clever political maneuvering. In 43 BCE, Mark Antony demanded that Cisalpine Gaul be given to him. This alarmed the Senate, who worried that Mark Antony was growing too bold. Additionally, if Mark Antony controlled the passes leading into Gallia proper, he could claim a massive Roman province, loyal to Caesar, and raise even more troops. Octavian wisely asked the Senate for permission to use his private armies to quell Mark Antony's rebellion, to which they readily agreed. Antony was humiliated, Octavian came off as a defender of peace and the old Roman order, and Gallia was spared from war. While Mark Antony became increasingly unpopular, he was not done for. Furthermore, Octavian was a cold pragmatist. As soon as Antony's rebellion ended, the two united and launched a war against Caesar's assassins. In this civil war, the Fifth Legion again served and helped deliver a victory for the pro Caesar faction. After the war, Octavian, Mark Antony, and Marcus Lepidus, a former ally of Caesar, formally inaugurated a political union known to history as the Second Triumvirate. Unlike the first, which was an informal understanding between the three leading figures in Rome, the Second Triumvirate was a legally binding union, which gave Africa to Lepidus, Eastern Europe and the Near East to Mark Antony, Western Europe to Octavian, and meanwhile Italy was supposedly ruled between the three and the Senate, though Octavian controlled it from behind the scenes. But despite the formation of this political union, all of the actors knew that it was not intended to last. The first of the three to fall was Marcus Lepidus. Much like Crassus before him, Lepidus knew he was the third wheel and wanted to acquire power and glory for himself. From 44 to 36, Sextus Pompey, son of the late Gnaeus Pompey, led a pirate-based insurrection at Sicily. Lepidus was ordered by the Senate, which was firmly under Octavian's control, to quell the rebellion. After finally doing so, Lepidus demanded that he be given Sicily to rule. This outraged the Senate and the people of Rome as they considered Sicily to be a part of Italy. I mean, it was certainly closer to Italy than Africa. Octavian then engaged in a propaganda war against Lepidus, claiming that he aimed to make himself dictator and tear the Roman world apart. At this point, Lepidus was condemned by the two greatest authorities in the Roman world, the Senate, which was the ancient and sacred governing body, and Octavian, whom many believed to be a living god. Humiliatingly, Lepidus' legions defected to Octavian, who then forced the disgraced general into exile. With Lepidus out of the way, the Roman world was again divided between two egotistical men. However, two decades earlier, Caesar and Pompey had relatively equal standing in terms of military and popular power. By 36 BCE, Octavian was clearly the dominant power in the Roman world. The Senate loved him and despised Mark Antony. The Roman people loved him and were lukewarm about Mark Antony. Octavian had access to a massive fortune, which he could use to bribe senators, patronize popular games, and raise armies personally loyal to him. Add to this that he was worshipped as a literal god, and Octavian was unquestionably the most powerful man in Rome. While Mark Antony was not as politically savvy as his rival, he wasn't stupid. He knew that the only way he could contend with Octavian was if he achieved glory comparable to that which Octavian inherited from Caesar. To accomplish this, Mark Antony decided to pull off a classic Roman move. He was going to invade Persia. Just like Crossus before him, he understood that a successful invasion of Persia would bring him unimaginable wealth and glory. Yet, his attempts at an invasion failed, in large part due to Croesus' previous invasion and the damage that had caused. After the war, Armenia remained nominally independent under its king, Ardivastes II. Remember him? He was the king that offered 40,000 troops and a way into Persia to Crossus, but then Crossus said, get out of the way, you're hogging my spotlight, and then Crossus marched into the desert and got his dumb self killed. After Artavastes made the disastrous decision to unite with the Romans, the Persians invaded Armenia. The Persians allowed Artavastes to remain in power, though at this point the Armenian king and his people knew that Persia called the shots. While Artavastes would have loved to throw off the Persian yoke, he had already been burned once and he wasn't going to side with the Romans again. When Mark Antony invaded in 40 BCE, the Armenians fought against him. After six years of fighting, it became clear Mark Antony could never hope to conquer Persia. In retribution, Mark Antony invaded Armenia in 34 BCE, sacking its capital and capturing the royal family, who were taken to Egypt, Mark Antony's base of power, where he ruled the east with his lover, Queen Cleopatra. There, the old Armenian king and his family were forced to march in Antony's triumph, wearing golden chains. After failing in his conquest of Persia, Mark Antony resigned himself to living in luxury in Egypt, siring children with Cleopatra. In 34 BCE, Mark Antony sent a proclamation to Rome, known to history as the Donations of Alexandria, which would give control of the Eastern Roman territories to his son Caesarian. The Senate refused to ratify this, and the mere fact that Antony was trying to divide up the Roman world and give it to his child, particularly the child of a foreign kingdom, was an outrage. In 32 BCE, Octavian made a decisive move to seize total power in Rome when he produced what he claimed was Mark Antony's will, which decreed that his son would inherit the Eastern Roman world. Whether this was real or a clever forgery, we will never know, but either way, it launched the final war of the Roman Republic. Octavian's forces defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra's at the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE, which the Fifth Legion took part in. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash French History 50, and use the code French History 50. Sign up today, your stomach will thank you. During the battle, Cleopatra ordered the beheading of Artavastes and had the head sent to his lifelong rival, the King of Media, in order to secure his allegiance. But after Actium, the war was clearly lost for Antony, who committed suicide on the 31st of July, 30 BCE, by stabbing himself in the stomach. According to legend, on August the 12th, Cleopatra let an asp bite her in the breast. A month later, their child was executed and the civil war came to an end, with Octavian as the sole ruler of Rome. Over the next few years, Octavian consolidated his power, but did so under the auspices that he was restoring the old Roman order and the power of the Senate. In 27 BCE, he took up the title Augustus, meaning revered one, and soon established his line as emperors of Rome. Thus, the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire. Augustus, his descendants, and claimants to his legacy would rule as the god emperors of Rome until its fall in 476 AD. The question we must ask ourselves is what did the fall of the Republic and the rise of the Empire mean for Roman Gallia? For the Gauls, the rise of Augustus meant peace and economic transformation. After suffering devastation and arguably genocide under Julius Caesar, Augustus invested his time, wealth, and wisdom into rebuilding this ravaged country. Though, what emerged was markedly different from Celtic Gaul, as Roman Gallia was a hybrid of these two cultures. There's no way I can cover all of the incredible transformations Gallia underwent in one episode, so for this one I'm going to talk about the early phase of Roman city-building, with future episodes covering politics, culture, religion, the military, and the economy, as Augustus completely reshapes Gallia. Romanization was a steady, multifaceted process that revolved around building fixed spaces. In order, this was the fort, the city, and the villa. First, Rome would conquer an area and establish military bases in strategic locations. Soldiers stationed in these bases inevitably created their own economies and communities as they bought goods from local farmers, merchants, priests, and, let's say, enterprising women. Next came the Roman city, many of which were built around Roman forts. Moreover, the Roman city adopted much of the fort's physical layout, as Roman cities had a grid based system as opposed to growing organically as most villages did. Furthermore, the early inhabitants of the new Roman cities were veterans who, upon being discharged from service, were granted land in conquered territory. In this process, many locals were often pushed off of their land. While this devastated the evicted farmers, very few would actually try to retake their land from these veteran soldiers. The Roman city served as a node, by which conquered territories were remade. Roman cities contained tens of thousands of people, an incredible figure given that 90% of the world's population lived in small villages of a few hundred people at most. Indigenous peoples were naturally drawn into these cities' orbit as they delivered food and goods to the cities while purchasing Roman imports, namely artisanal products and exotic imports like wine, ivory, spices, metals, Chinese silk, and other goods that couldn't be acquired locally. Locals who entered the cities had to learn to speak basic Latin, while Roman city-dwellers learned the local languages, and from this mixing, hybrid languages emerged. Indigenous peoples often came to cities to worship at Roman temples, either because they adopted the Roman gods, or they believed that the god worshipped at a temple was a mutual god they shared, or they came to visit shrines dedicated to their deities, since the Romans often adopted local gods into their pantheon. And of course, people often visited the cities for cultural events held at the amphitheaters and arenas. In this way, cities reshaped the regions around them, bringing conquered peoples into the Roman orbit and into their own cultural lifestyle. Augustus organized the construction or growth of numerous new cities, five of which shaped the landscape of Gallia and France for the next 2,000 years. Those five were Arlate. Arisio, Augusta Dunham, Lug Dunham, and Nemausus, or as they are known today, Arles, Orange, Autun, Lyon, and Nîmes. For this miniature tour, we'll start in the south and work our way up, since, after all, that was how Romanization occurred in Gallia. Each city's history is tied in with the history of Gallia as a part Roman, part Celtic landscape emerged. Our first great Roman city is Arlate, today known as Arle, though the ancient city was closer to the sea. Arlate was originally a Ligurian town which the Romans conquered in one twenty three bCE for nearly a century. Arlate was a minor town that was overshadowed by Massalia. following the siege of Massalia. Rome seized its outlying territories, giving Arlate more room to expand. When Augustus came to power, he heavily invested in it, as he wanted a Roman city to supplant the semi-autonomous Massalia. In 28 BCE, he resettled veterans from the 6th Legion, which had its base there, and is why the city's proper name was Colonia Iulia Paterna Aurelatenisium Sextanorum, the ancestral Julian colony of Arla of the Soldiers of the Sixth but try putting that on a welcome sign. Aurelate rapidly became a city of considerable importance in the province of Gallia Narbonensis. It covered an area of some 40 hectares, or 99 acres, and possessed a number of monuments, including an amphitheater, triumphal arc, Roman circus, and a full circuit of walls. It also had, and still has, the southernmost bridge on the Rhone River. Very unusually, the Roman bridge was not fixed, but consisted of a pontoon-style bridge of boats, with towers and drawbridges at each end. The boats were secured in place by anchors and were tethered to twin towers built just upstream of the bridge. This unusual design was a way of coping with the river's frequent violent floods, which would have made short work of a conventional bridge. Nothing remains of the old Roman bridge, which has been replaced by a more modern bridge near the same spot. Our next city is Nemausus, modern-day Neme, just inland. Its earliest inhabitants were Ligurians, before the area was conquered and colonized by Massalia. This land was conquered with the siege of Massalia in 49 BCE. After defeating Pompey, Caesar settled veterans of the Roman legions who had served in his Nile campaigns, who, at the end of 15 years of soldiering, were given plots of land to cultivate. When Augustus came to power, he made Nemausus the capital of Narbonensis and increased its population to 60,000, an incredible figure at the time. Augustus gave the town a ring of ramparts six kilometers long, reinforced by 14 towers. Two thousand years later, and two gates remain the Porta Augusta and the Porte de France. Like many large Roman cities, it had an amphitheater which is still largely intact. But the crown jewel of Nemausus is the Roman temple, today known as Le Maison Carré or the Square House, which is perhaps the best preserved Roman temple in all of France. Built around the turn of the millennium, it was dedicated to the sons of Emperor Augustus. It's a wonderful symmetrical building, which the Emperor Napoleon later used as the model for the Madeleine Church in Paris. Of all the incredible building projects across Gallia, the most impressive was the massive aqueduct that served Nemausus, today known as the Pont du Gard. This 50 kilometer long aqueduct carried 40,000 cubic meters or almost 9 million gallons of water, daily to the baths and homes of Nemausus. The Pont du Gard is the highest of all Roman aqueduct bridges and is largely preserved, because the Romans built to last. So the next time you visit Nîmes, you can see much of the old Roman city. Further inland, along the Rhone River, is our third city of Orisio, or modern-day Orange. In 35 BCE, Augustus resettled veterans of the Second Legion in the city. Orisio, more than any other city, was created as a miniature Rome, both to appease incoming Romans and to awe the local Gauls. Orisio hosted a theater, forum, and public baths. Augustus constructed a massive amphitheater in 25 BCE, which still remains. Oricio's unique monument is its triumphal arch. Built around 20 BCE, the arch was dedicated to Augustus' stepson, Tiberius, and was part of the Via Agrippa, the famous Roman road linking Lugdunum to Arlate. The arch is sculpted with the campaigns of the Second Legion and its exploits. If you are an orange, be sure to get up close to see the carving, which is still remarkably intact, and you can see depictions of the great battles and the triumphant naval engagement of the legion against Antony and Cleopatra. Midway between the Mediterranean and the northernmost tip of Gallia was Lugdunum, or modern-day Lyon. In 43 BCE, the Roman Senate ordered the creation of a settlement for Roman refugees of war in the surrounding area. Augustus enacted this mandate and founded the city as Colonia Copia Felix Munatia, on the Fourviere Hill, but again the long-form name didn't catch on. The city was immediately recognized as among the most important in Gaul as it was halfway between north and western Gallia, and it was where the Rhone and Seon rivers converged. Throughout Augustus' reign, Lugdunum was the capital of Gallia and probably the largest city, at the very least the largest north of the coastal province of Narbonensis. The Grand Roman Theater of Lyon was built in 15 BCE and seats 10,000 people. This indicates just how massive this city became in such a short time and explains just how central Lugdunum was. One final note that shows how important this city was is that the future emperor Claudius was born there in 10 BCE. It is this city which would dominate Gallia for much of its history, while the northerly city of Lutece, today known as Paris, only became important after the Frankish invasions half a millennia later. While Augustus was largely responsible for the rise of Lugdunum, he couldn't have been happy that it became the great city of Gallia, since he wanted another city to be the capital. His preferred city, and our final one, is Augusta-Dunum, or modern-day Autun. This city was founded by Augustus to be the new capital of the Adui tribe, replacing the devastated Bibracte. Augustus filled the city with large monuments to the greatness of himself and of Rome in order to win over the Gauls. While much of these are destroyed, the Roman amphitheater and the Temple of Janus remain, even after two millennia. There were many other cities within Gallia which Augustus made, though none were as spectacular as these five the new Roman cities served as the foundries that reforged Gaul into Roman Gallia. Their sheer size and patronage by the Roman state meant that most trade, political gatherings, religious ceremonies, centers of education, and cultural festivals were held within the cities. By Augustus' death, 85% of Gauls still lived in rural villages of a few hundred people at most. But despite this, The cities served as the fulcrums by which the most important functions of society were conducted and controlled by Roman oversight. The Gauls either entered into the orbit of the cities or remained in their scattered villages where they were incapable of raising any serious threat to Rome. But there is a space between Roman city and Gallic village, and that is the third and final step in the process of Romanization, the Roman villa. We'll be discussing the Roman villa more in future episodes, but for now, just know that the Roman villa was a large-scale agricultural unit where a rich landlord owned the land and hired farmers to work it for him. The pacification of Gallia meant that enterprising Romans who understood how rich the Gallic soil was entered Gallia and set up villas near large cities. Following the Gallic Wars and the forced resettlement of Gauls to make room for incoming Roman soldiers, many Gauls had no choice but to work on the villas. In this manner, the villas served as additional nets that caught up many impoverished Gauls and ensured that they would remain in the orbit of the Roman commercial system. And if they were in the Roman commercial system, they would feel the effects of Roman law, religion, and culture. One important thing to note is while the villa system came from Rome, many Gallic villas were owned by elite Gauls who adopted the Roman invention. Thus, it wasn't just Romans who were catching up the displaced Gauls and pulling them into the city system, but Gallic elites as well. Under Augustus, the Roman forts were turned into cities, surrounded by villas, and it is this geospatial reconfiguration of Gallia that sped up Romanization. Next time, we'll dive into what Romanization meant for the people of Gallia themselves, as they struggled to maintain their local customs and identity in the face of Roman politics, culture, language, religion, and economic system. The Romans may have reshaped the physical structure of Gaul, but could the Gallic spirit live on? Tune in next time and find out. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago.